0: Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Luke. This morning we're going to read chapter 2, verse 1 through uh, chapter, or the uh, the end of that section, verse 21, Luke 2, 1 through 21. Uh, When I read in a moment, though, however, we're going to be focused this morning in particular on verses uh, 10 through 14, and so pay particular attention to those verses as we read uh, an excellent uh, hymn for this passage, which is, is really focused on the, uh, the narrative of God coming, uh, the, uh, the angels coming to announce the birth of Christ to the shepherds. Uh, it's amongst the, the most well-known passages in Scripture. Many of you may have grown up reading it on Christmas Day. It's read uh, at Christmas concerts. If you go to any of the concerts around here that are are popular at Christmas, it's often read. Uh, If you're my age, give or take, uh, you remember Linus reciting these verses in a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, It's this familiarity with this text that at once may send us into a sort of uh, reverie as we consider uh, all of the memories of Christmases in the past, uh, but it's also this same familiarity that robs the text of so much of its power to startle us this morning. And so I want to consider some of those things that are startling in this morning's text. There will be fantastic proclamations that seem to clash impossibly uh, with the the revelations that come we, we read that God himself has come and then we read that you will find him in a feeding trough. Uh, there, there's so many uh, unsettling and surprising things to find here in the text right out of the gate Luke sets the events squarely in the context of history as well a real man, Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken and a real governor Corinius is in... Command is governing in Syria. What's about to happen in these verses is the stuff of legends and myths, but it is no legend and it is no myth. Quirinius likely uh, thought that he had uh, he had arrived when he was made governor. At the time, uh, you were made governor by the Caesar, uh, and Quirinius, unlikely to ever be Caesar himself has probably thought to himself, I've, I've arrived, this is my legacy. History has no memory of Quirinius, apart from the brief mention here that he happened to be governing when a baby was born in a backwater of the Roman Empire who would be king. Uh, this is history. History that we read this morning, and it would, uh, it would serve us well if we remember that it's history. Uh, even our familiarity with the text and the sort of soft, warm fuzzies we get as we read it, as we remember a Charlie Brown Christmas, as we remember, perhaps, depending on where you grew up, uh, sitting around a fire on Christmas morning in your pajamas, unwrapping presents. It, it gives a sort of gauzy haze to the entire narrative, but these are real events in history. And we should remember that as we read. I'm going to read in a moment, and I want you to remember three things that we're going to look at this morning as we read. First, that Christ is born unto us. Christ is born unto us. Second, that Christ is born to God's glory. That Christ is born to God's glory. And finally, that Christ is born to bring peace. Christ is born bring peace. Let me pray for us and we'll read the text this morning. Father in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to be your people. We rejoice that this message, this good news that is pronounced in these verses this morning was for the shepherds. It was for all people and it is for us this morning. And so, Father, I pray that as we read, you would give us fresh eyes to see uh, that we would find startling the things that are indeed startling in these verses. Uh, that we would be awestruck all over again, that we would be moved to sing praise to you and to glorify your name because of your perfections. Father, we pray that you would do all of this in our hearts, that your spirit would be at work as this word is read and preached, that we would leave here this morning rejoicing together with your people throughout history that Jesus Christ has come and he has done all that is necessary for our salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord thanks be to god well first this morning christ is born unto us look there in verse 11 uh, beginning in verse 10 the angel says to them uh, fear not for behold i bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day Uh, the the idea of being born of birth uh, is, is one of those other things that's familiar to us. It's not just the, the passage that's familiar, but birth happens every day. And while we still recognize some miraculous uh, sort of element in each individual birth, uh, the, the idea of giving birth to a child, that verb, if you will, to be born, uh, it, it's absent of the the shocking quality that it ought to have here if we don't consider who it is that's being born. God was born as a little child. We enter into the story of salvation, and we need to pause and let this sink in, the everlasting God who has no beginning and no end, who is infinite in His perfections who made all things and upholds them for his glory, this God was born. He became man. Imagine the the shocking quality of this. And it's not that that a, a man is being born here, and later God's people will find out that he is the Lord, that he is Yahweh. It's pronounced right here in this morning's text. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. The Lord being that title given to God in the Old Testament and applied to Christ throughout the new. And it's not just that Luke knows as he looks back on this event that the one he's talking about is the Lord. It is in the mouth of the angel at the point of it being pronounced that it is announced that the one who is born is Yahweh. It's shocking, it ought to be shocking to us of all things. We know all too well of our own need to be saved. And we know of our inability to do anything to save ourselves. And we know of God's grace and His mercy and His love and that He has promised to save. But that He would save by coming, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and being born into His very creation. It is scandalous. If it was not true, it would be blasphemous to say so. What shocking truth that the second person of the Trinity would come and be born a man. Luke, in his telling of the story, perhaps acknowledges this a bit. Greek, and I, I promise it won't be a long lesson in grammar, but Greek is what we call a highly inflected language. We, we put endings on all the words In English, if we want to make something plural, we put a new ending on it. Usually something like an S, right? Uh, uh, The first example that came to mind doesn't do that. I thought childs. No, not childs. Children. Uh, But you see the same thing there, right? A new ending that, that gives you some new information about the word. Greek does this with almost all of their words. And it's not just singular and plural that you get. It's masculine and feminine and neuter. It's, uh, it's all of the different things, including, and this is why I'm, I'm telling you this, including telling you what that word is doing in the sentence. And because they all have these little tags on the end of them, and, and among other things, it tells you what it does in the sentence. In, in Greek, you can put the words in lots of different orders. Unlike English, where word order gives you almost sometimes all of the information you have about how a word works in the sentence. All of which I say because I want you to understand that in the original, when the angel comes and he begins to speak, look back at 10... I'm going to read it from the ESV until I get to the key moment, and then I'm going to begin translating it for you in the the order of the words in the original Greek. The angel says in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. He is born today for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, In the city of Bethlehem. In the original language, because they can put the words in different orders, it doesn't mean that the order doesn't matter. One of the things that matters about the order is they will often take the words that matter most in a sentence and throw them to the front of the sentence. They give emphasis to that word. And in this case, the emphasis that the angel gives in this sentence is to this action of being born. And in fact, I just now I said it out loud in the present. It's actually past tense, which together with the word today gives this, this profound sense of the moment. The angel says, he was born. He who? The angel hasn't said yet. You're going to have to keep listening to discover who the he is. But listen, he was born today, the angel says. It's shocking. He was born today for you a savior, the Christ, the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of all things, was born. He took on flesh. Our theological word for this is incarnation. The incarnation is one of the biggest mysteries in the history of the world. And the church will even spend centuries wrestling with, debating among one another, how this could be true, in what sense it's true, how does God accomplish it? But in our text this morning, it is not the how, it is the to what end that the angel is concerned with and that the shepherds celebrate and that the people who are present with the family wonder at and that Mary treasures up in her heart. the why is so much more important unto you is born today why is christ born it is for our salvation we we get it right here in the title who is born he was born today who a savior christ the lord The birth of Christ, the very very verb, the action there, the birth of Christ should stun us. Yes, it's a cause of great rejoicing, and we see that in the text, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but before we open our mouths, we ought to place our hands over them. We should be stunned. God became man. Man. And it's, it's not just a difficulty of biology or metaphysics. It is the, the humility of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, that he would do this. Paul will, will go on about this at length in Philippians chapter 2 in that great passage on the emptying of Christ. Christ who empties himself not by subtraction. Paul says he empties himself by addition. He empties himself becoming A man, taking on the form of a man. It's good news. It's astounding. It causes us to worship God. But first, we need to pause and be awed by this all over again. We're still in the first point. We're going to finish on time today, I promise. But here, under this first point, he is born unto us. We have to also pick up this unto you language. Verse 11, for unto you is born. Unto you, the angel says to the shepherds. The angel doesn't come to Herod and say, unto you. He doesn't come to Caesar and say, unto you. He comes to the shepherds and says, unto you, shepherds who in the culture, though their, their value was recognized, they were not considered middle class, and they certainly were not considered upper class. They were not people of power. They were not people of wealth. They were people who lived rough. And it's not only the humility of the shepherds that that ought to stand out to us, but it is that the great shepherd's birth has been announced to these shepherds. And his coming is not for, for others, it's for them. The angel, notice he says at the end of verse 10, Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And there's an exclamation point put on that all the people when the angel says, for unto you, shepherds. Unto you. Good news, great joy for all the people and for you. Christ, our great shepherd, was born today. Children, have you ever like the moment we're in right now thought that what was happening around you was for your parents? Have you ever found yourself daydreaming, playing, minding your own business and suddenly you realize that the person talking to your dad, the person talking to your mom is now talking to you? Suddenly you're startled, right? You're a part of this conversation. You are every bit as much a part of this conversation as the shepherds were on this day. In the middle of greatness. In the middle of the announcement that the Son of God has been born today. And that it is good news. It is great tidings. It brings joy and peace and causes God to be glorified in heaven. And it's for you too. Little ones, this good news is for you. And I hope and pray that you will spend the rest of your life in awe of this truth. That God has done this for you. He's done it for your mom and dad as well. And we are equally in need of it. But you are not excluded. This is not a truth for your parents. And maybe one day for you. It is yours now. The angel comes and says unto you This day was born a Savior. Unto you. uh, It's it's a mark of advantage in the original language. uh, We've said it so many times. Have you ever stopped and asked, What does it mean, unto you is born this day? Uh, What exactly is the angel getting at when he says, Unto you is born this day? You know, what it means for Christ to be born unto us is that it is to our advantage. We gain an advantage in the birth of Christ. What advantage? The titles tell us He is our Savior. This is our advantage. This is how He is born into or unto us is because He is born for our sake, for our salvation. This is our Advantage. This is what we gain in Christ, that He is born for our good. And who is this Savior? He's God's anointed one. That's what Christ means here. Uh, it's the, the Greek version of the Hebrew word, Greek Christos. The Hebrew word is Mashiach from which we get our English word messiah all all just different words in different languages that mean the exact same thing they mean the anointed one this one who was born today this one who was born for our salvation he's the messiah he's the promised one listen he's not like one of the judges raised up for a moment to deliver us for a moment and then die, that we would go back to our sin, back to our estate of sin and misery. No, this is a judge who is the anointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the one promised in Genesis 3 that all of the Old Testament saints have been looking forward to for more than 2,000 years. He's the anointed one. And listen, it's not just an identity. That's not just a, it's not an exegetical key that allows us now to go back and read the Old Testament and understand it better. It's that, yes, but it's so much more. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one. And what that means is he cannot and will not fail at the mission that he has come to accomplish. What good news for the people of God. He is the one anointed by Christ. It was common actually in the first century. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. But the people of God, the Israelites at this time in history, they know a Messiah is promised. They are looking for this Messiah. Some more than others. Some expecting one thing instead of another. But there is a a deeply rooted messianic expectation in this culture. And one of the results of that expectation is guys pop up all the time saying they're the Messiah. There's a famous event in history of a rebellion led by someone who claimed to be the Messiah. It resulted in one of the largest mass crucifixions that we know about in history. To stand up and say you're a Messiah in the first century in Palestine is honestly not that big a deal. But there can only be one true Messiah who comes sent by God. That's what it ultimately means to be the Messiah sent by God. And if sent by God, then with full authority and all power. Who is this one who was born Today, a savior and not just another Johnny come lately, jumped up full of himself guy who's just going to end up failing. No, this one is the one sent by God and not only sent by God, but brothers and sisters who is God himself, Christ the Lord. In this title, Lord, here, we have not only an indication of Christ's deity, He is God Himself come to save us. God did not send someone else to come and save us, but He Himself came to save us. And in that, we see all of His sovereignty. He is worthy of all of our worship and praise and obedience, but we also have in that title, Lord, a reminder that He is King. And as King, He not only subdues us to Himself, He not only defends us, but he defeats all his and our enemies. Unto you was born today a Savior, the Messiah, Lord. He is our Lord, He is our God, our Sovereign, our King why? Why was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born? It was to save sinners, to rescue us, to be our perfect prophet, our perfect priest, our perfect king, a judge who will never die. Brothers and sisters, this Savior, this Messiah, this Lord is born unto us. Praise be to God. Second this morning, Christ is born to God's glory. The news of this great work of God results in angelic praise. And it's no small venue. The the shepherds may be a humble people, but this is not a humble event. The skies are filled with the glory of the Lord shining around them and a multitude of angels singing, praising God. And what is it that the angels have to say, glory to God in the highest? And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Christ is born to God's glory. I want to look at that first line. In order to understand the first line, we have to recognize that this song that we have in verse 14 is really two lines. And these lines are in a sort of parallel with one another. In the first line, it is God in heaven being glorified. And in the second line, it is man on earth. Enjoying peace. Glory to God in the highest. Again, a common, a well-known and familiar expression, especially this time of year. But what does in the highest mean? That in the highest stands against, in the parallel line, that phrase on earth. On earth, men have peace. In heaven, God receives praise and glory. Christ is born to the glory of God. That is, those who are in heaven, the angels and the church triumphant, heaven praises God. Why? Because of what He has done in sending Christ. Because of the great work of salvation that He is accomplishing. Because having promised it, He now fulfills His promise. But above all things, because of how this great saving work expresses God's perfect attributes. We don't have time this morning to go through all of the attributes of God, but on display here, most evidently in the birth of the Son of God as a Savior, are the mercy of God, His grace, His power, His justice, and perhaps, if we can say this above all, His love. What a display of love. John will pick up on this in his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And the fact that it's love that is on display, that it is the love in God which moves him to save his people. I, I don't want us to too quickly relegate it to a theological category, to a taxonomy of all the different things we can say about God. The fact that love is at the center of what God is doing ought to always draw our attention back to the fact that what God is doing is not a mere judicial transaction. It is not a mere business transaction that what Jesus Christ is doing, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, together in concert with the Trinity, in our salvation, is ultimately... To glorify God. It is to restore fellowship. To to glorify God by restoring fellowship. Systematic theology is profoundly important. Profoundly important. But in it we do something slightly false. You see we have to take the thing apart in order to study it. And like taking an engine apart to all of its smallest pieces, you can learn a great deal about it. But it's not an engine as long as it's separated into its various parts. It's no good to you that way. It doesn't work. And, and we do. We have to come to God's word and we have to take all of the evidence that we have. And being finite creatures, trying to talk about an infinite God, we have to take it apart into its smallest pieces and, and discuss those pieces in discrete. Parts and try to come to an understanding of who God is. We do this with his attributes as well. But listen, at the end of the day, you've got to put it all back together. And when we put it all back together, what our systematic theology ought to do is place on a pedestal to lift high in the air for our viewing, for our adoration, a God who is personal. Who loves his people and out of love for his people will go to any lengths to restore the fellowship that he has with us. To any lengths. What lengths? Subjecting himself to the very creation that he himself made. How absurd! How scandalous! That the God who actively holds creation together by an act of His will in every moment would Himself come into that creation and be subjected to it. God is glorifying Himself in the birth of Christ. How? How does that glorify God? Not only because of the miraculous nature of it. A virgin birth. God becoming man. But ultimately, God glorifies Himself in the birth of Christ because in that birth is the salvation of His people. And God has gone to every length in order to save us, to restore us to Himself. You are no longer under judgment but listen much much better than that you are now in right relationship you have restored fellowship listen christmas of all times of year it can be one of the most difficult times of year can't it family members that we are no longer in fellowship with that we have easily ignored all year long can no longer be ignored even if we're not going to see them, even if we're not going to talk to them, the fact that we're not seeing them and not talking to them becomes acute and in some senses perhaps even aggravated this time of year. And if it's not family, perhaps it's friends. Can you imagine if that, that family member that you may not even like right now if you're honest, right? We're all Christians, right? We're all supposed to to talk about all the forgiving and the forgetting and the unconditional love, but we're we're also humans, right? And that spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. And if we're honest with ourselves in our less sanctified moments, we don't even like that family member because of who they are and what they've done. It's okay probably we have family members who don't like us because of who we are and what we've done. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a thoroughgoing, fully-throated, absolutely sincere, rapturous reconciliation with that family member in which genuine love is reestablished, and you've now regained that family member in love? Can you imagine such a moment? It's nothing, nothing compared to the reconciliation that we have with God in Jesus Christ. The gulf between us and God, so much greater than that family member who you may actually successfully go to your grave without ever speaking to again. That's nothing compared to the gulf that exists between us and God And the reconciliation that is ours with God because Jesus Christ is born today to us. Christ is born to God's glory. It is God in His perfections that is on display in the birth of Jesus Christ. God is born. Christ is born to God's glory. He's born to save Men, yes, to bring peace, absolutely, but above all all things, to point the eyes of every person who ever lived heavenward as we gaze upon a God who would show such love to such people, a perfect love that lays down life in order to give it, a perverse people who do not deserve it. What a Savior, what a Messiah, what a Lord, what good news and great glory. Finally, this morning, Christ is born to bring peace. Men on earth have peace. The angels sing on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who is this peace for? The the original language here says among men. Uh, Your ESV reads among those. It's an attempt to 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 communicate rightly that it's not just men who have peace women children all of us who are in Christ come into this great blessing of peace but i wish they had translated it mankind because those is so sterile those feels like it could be anyone anything but it's not it's mankind. Peace among men of his good pleasure. In other words, those on whom God has poured out his favor. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach notes in his commentary on Luke that in first century Judaism, the context in which the angels are singing this song, the term had become almost a technical phrase for God's elect. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who is this peace for? This peace is for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins. I've often heard criticism of the christian faith because right here especially if you go back and you read it in the new in the uh, the king james version the translation of that last line suggests that with the birth of christ peace has come to the earth in some general sense the criticism is that they look around and they say what peace what peace indeed it's peace between God and man, this is why it's peace for those with whom he is pleased. It is first and foremost peace between God and man. Paul tells us about this. I'm not going to read it this morning because I, I feel like I've read it three times in the last two weeks. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. What is the result of Christ? It is that there is now peace between God and man. He says, we have been reconciled to the Father. It is peace between God and man. It's mankind's greatest need. We are at war with our creator in rebellion against him. And he is not delayed putting this rebellion down by our great strength. But only by his patience and mercy and love. The day is coming when he will finally put our rebellion to an end. And the rebels will be punished forever. What we need desperately is to be won over to the side of our King to be restored to a peaceful relationship with Him in which He rules and defends us, His people, and we worship and serve our rightful King. Listen, in this trouble, in this problem, our rebellion and His just and perfect righteousness, we cannot sue for peace. There is nothing that we can do as rebels to reestablish a rightful relationship with our King. If we are to be restored, our King must do the restoration. He must move to establish amnesty. It's our King who has to draw us away from the enemy. It's our greatest need. And the day is coming when he will finally put that rebellion to an end. We deserve the swift justice of righteous condemnation and instead God promised to win us over to himself to establish peace between us, himself, since we could not. That peace was established in history, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this, this is why The angels are praising God for the peace that the birth of Christ heralds. Therefore, peace between one person and another comes along as a result. That peace on earth that everybody was... They look at, particularly, again, that that King James translation, and they say, what peace? What are you talking about? Jesus has come and gone. It's been 2,000 years. And in the very... I mean, within miles... Of where all that happened. A war is raging even today. What are you guys talking about? Peace. The answer is that it is first peace between God and man. But listen, that peace between God and man, it establishes peace between us. Peace between those who know that Christ. If I am in Christ and you are in Christ, we have peace. Now listen, I want you to be very clear about this. The peace you have with God is an objective peace. You may say to yourself some days, I don't feel like I have peace with God. What is true and what you feel are not the same thing. You have peace with God objectively. He is not your enemy. He is your father who loves you, and He will discipline you because He loves you, but He is not your enemy. An objective peace has been established between us as well. There is no legitimate basis for any conflict between Christians. Now, again, we are both flesh and spirit. We're at war in, in each of our own selves, we are at war, and so our practical experience of life together in the church will include conflict, but listen, it's not that way, it's not supposed to be that way. It's not necessary for it to be that way. The peace that we have with Christ gives us peace with one another, and that peace ought to be true in here. And remember, what what was the first instruction given to Adam and Eve? It was to fill the earth and subdue it. The peace that we have with one another spreads as the gospel spreads and grows as the church grows. and The earth is filled and subdued to the glory of God. A day will come when the work of filling the earth and subduing it, subduing it to the gospel and to Christ will come to a sudden and glorious end at the return of Christ. And when he comes again, he will defeat all his and our enemies and establish a true peace on earth that will be complete. A a peace that every person who remains on the earth will enjoy and participate in. And a peace that will last forever, never to be disturbed again. When we think of the last day, when we think of Christ coming again, setting up thrones, establishing His judgment, and entering together, us, we, entering together with Christ into eternity of glorified perfection and the peace that necessarily characterizes that eternity. Listen, it's shocking. That peace began in history 2,000 years ago with the birth of Christ. And we are in the, the, the process, the unfolding of that peace becoming a reality on earth. And it is a reality now in the church in, a, in a, an objective sense. It will become increasingly a reality for us until Christ comes again and establishes His kingdom on earth forever. Brothers and sisters, what good news for us. Christ is born. What good news, He is a Savior to us. What good news, He is the Messiah and Lord. Let's pray.